We continue this morning our series in Luke's Gospel, turning again to the ninth chapter of Luke. Luke 9, 37 through 45, a very simple narrative, nothing esoteric, very clear, very simple, very profound, because it shows us Jesus. Now before we pray and read this passage, you will recall that the Lord Jesus has been showing his authority through a variety of miracles. He calmed the storm. He healed the man with a demon. He healed a woman and showed his authority over death by raising Jairus' daughter. He sent out the apostles. He showed his authority in the feeding of the 5,000. He elicited a confession of faith from the apostles. He foretold his death He calls to discipleship, take up your cross and follow me. And last week we saw the transfiguration, where the glory of the age to come shone through our Savior as he met on the mount with three of his disciples, Elijah and Moses. It's important to keep the transfiguration in mind as we come to this passage this morning. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, once again, we turn to your holy and infallible word, and we know that because it comes from your hand, it is thoroughly and totally reliable and trustworthy, inerrant in the whole and in the part. And Father, though all the world around us will deny this word, though we were the only ones to hold it, may we be determined to submit to the authority of your word, for life without Christ would be nothing. And there would be virtual insanity in our hearts were it not for what you have revealed concerning yourself, concerning ourselves, the world in which we live, our need, and how you have met it in Christ. To whom else can we turn, Lord Jesus, for you only have the words of eternal life. Open our hearts to receive this word work deep within to show us our sin, to show us your sovereign free grace, to show us Christ, grow your people in grace, and convert, we pray, the lost in our services of worship on this day. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us on a cross, we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? And let me remind you that because it is expository preaching, it's very helpful if you keep the text open before you as the word is being expounded. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 37. This is the word of God. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Raphael understood the connection. In his last unfinished painting that was commissioned in 1517, the carefully composed canvas was divided into two parts. In the upper portion of the canvas, there is the transfiguration. Christ, Moses, and Elijah there in transcendent glory, while at the bottom of the campus, the darker portion, the disciples dispute with teachers of the law about the boy that they could not cure. The boy's right hand is pointing up, as are some of the others in the painting, lifted upward, bringing the eye's attention toward Christ the exalted and transcendent Lord. Glory above, distress below. Glory above, distress below. This is the world into which the transcendent Christ came. A world of sin, destruction, strife, and unbelief. All found at the mount, on the foot of the mount of transfiguration. It is as if At the bottom of the mount, we see this needy world in microcosm. And as we enter the scene that we have read this morning, we see first inability, inability. That is first, inability. We hear a father's pitiful cry for help. Verse 38, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And the son's condition is wretched. Verse 39, behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So the boy was controlled by a demon that caused him to cry out and to experience violent convulsions, foaming at the mouth, shatters him, actually is such a pitiful way of describing the boy. The demon will hardly leave him. Now, Mark's gospel, and we are preaching Luke, but occasionally it's helpful if we reference Matthew or Mark in a parallel. Mark tells us that these things were accompanied by speech and hearing complications. And so even if the father wanted to speak to his son and give to him some kind word or some, some encouragement or some word of love, he could not hear it. If he wanted to speak to his father about what he was experiencing, he could not do it. And the demon attempted to destroy the boy by throwing him into fire and water. 
Now, this is what sin does to all of us and all that is connected to sin. It is Satan's desire to mar and to distort and to destroy God's image bearer. We need to think about this every time we are tempted to those thoughts and attitudes of the heart that are contrary to God's nature. I mean, as Christians, these things mar, distort, and destroy God's image and the world which God has created good. Sin is never neutral. And the satanic realm may mask itself with a pleasing appearance, but it is always and ever destructive. Now, I'm not saying that the boy or his father endure this because of personal sin. I'm saying that these things are in the world because of the fall of man, because of the sin of Adam, and because in Adam's fall we sinned all. And the scriptures teach the existence of sin before our sins are even committed. Sin is radically strange. It is the irrational element that has invaded God's rational world. And so man... God's image bearer can now bear the imprint of the evil one. Some of you remember where it is, perhaps. I just remember the line in Shakespeare when he says, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And we see here human need and the powerlessness of man to do anything about his sin on a fundamental level or the effects of sin on a fundamental level. Not only could the boy's father not help, there's nothing he could do. The disciples could not help because verse 40 tells us that he actually begged the disciples to heal this boy and they could not. And so the father was powerless. The boy was powerless. There is nothing he could do. Jesus' disciples also were incapable of delivering this poor boy. Jesus' heartbreak over the unbelief of that generation is reflected in the heart-rending words of verse 41. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking partially to the disciples, but undoubtedly to the crowd around him. Jesus speaks of the agony of the results of the fall. This agonizing cry, don't you think he begins, oh, oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with these things before I make it right in my cross and in my resurrection? But this is the world into which our Savior voluntarily came. Now, will you pause and dwell on that for a few moments? We saw last week the glory of the transfigured Christ that shows who Jesus is in his essence. God's beloved son, the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate. And now he comes down the mountain into a scene of sin, confusion, demon possession, helplessness, hopelessness, ugly distortion of what is good, and twisted unbelief. And this is exactly where he wants be. Now, is that astounding or is it not? God, the second person of the Trinity, enjoying the glory and the love and the wonder of his fellowship with his Father, coming into this distorted, sinful world 
because he loved you and wanted to redeem you from your sin. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Do you see the contrast? The glory, the wonder of it on the mount. Do we begin to understand how he how he loved us? Do you begin to understand how loved you are? Do you begin to understand what it means that the infinite eternal Son of God assumed human nature and came into this world to die for your sins and to redeem you and to redeem me, the lost? Do we begin to understand the wonder of John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Do we begin to catch the wonder of it? And so the Father cannot help. The disciples cannot help. The poor son cannot help. And if you are a lost sinner, dead in your trespasses and sins, you can do nothing to redeem or save yourself. But that moves us to the second thing that we see in the passage, deliverance. Deliverance. Verse 41, Jesus says to the man's father who has come to Jesus, bring your son here. Bring him here. Hendrickson makes uh, an observation that I think is important. He notes that when we are in distress, we tend to lose interest in other people. But Jesus, in his deepest sorrows, as he is moving toward the cross, as he has just spoken to his disciples and told them, as he is moving toward the agony of the cross, Jesus thinks of others, even saves others, as we see in this text. Bring your son. Not, well, the disciples couldn't do it. Maybe I can heal him. Or maybe the case will be beyond me too, but I'm willing to give it a shot. That's not what Jesus means. Bring him. I will heal him. And when the boy was coming, the demon, in contempt for Jesus, attempted to destroy the boy. In verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. The violence done by the demon in complete contempt for Jesus shows the clash between the kingdom of God and of Satan. Satan was, in a sense, let loose when Jesus came to this earth as our incarnate Lord, so that the Lord Jesus might show his victory over the kingdom of evil. But even today, the God of this world, lowercase g, the God of this world hath blinded the eyes of them that believe not. You know, somewhere I remember Mr. Spurgeon saying, not in person, mind you, but reading. I remember Spurgeon saying that Satan works in all ungodly men as a smith at his forge. He cooperates with evil in men's hearts. Blasphemy, filthy thoughts, filthy words, ungodly passions, and unchastity are sparks from his anvil. And then Spurgeon said, if you're trying to lead men to Christ, do not be surprised to see lunatics let loose. Men who, having heard the gospel, become worse than ever they were before after they reject the gospel. Not to believe in the demonic realm is to fail to see a large component of reality to be what it is. Think about another thing. 
Many Christians have been taught to look for God in obvious empirical ways as evidences of his love. Oh, I have a large infusion into my bank account, or I have a big car, or I have a nice place to live, or I have all of these blessings in my life. Many just will not comprehend how God uses pain and sorrow to demonstrate his love. A Lutheran theologian that I read on occasion, whose name is Sinkbile, made the statement, if you have your eyes only on the heights, you will miss God where he usually is at work, in the depths. Now, isn't this part of the paradox of discipleship? The same theologian writes, finders may be keepers in the world's point of view, but Jesus figures things differently. In wanting to keep your life, you lose it. In losing, you win. In dying, you live. And so in the midst of the hardships of life and the circumstances that you may face that seem to overwhelm you and to be beyond you, I think the prayer should simply be, Lord, I am willing to lose my life and to die to self. Should this bring glory to your name? And that's why you need to be wary You really do need to be wary of those forms of Christianity that hype people up. The Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith, yes, there's healing here, but there also was the Son for whom the Father could do nothing, for whom the disciples could do nothing. The Christian life is not just mountaintop experiences. The Christian life is not always ecstasy. As a matter of fact, in this fallen world, it rarely is. The Christian faith is not like that. It is joyful, but it is also plodding and persevering and other-world-focused. Looking toward that heavenly inheritance that belongs to me now, but, what, but that I wait to fully enjoy. You know, in this regard, it might be good for you to remember that in Mark, dealing with this healing miracle, that there's one of the classic unforgettable utterances of the New Testament as the Father says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Showing us that true faith may be mingled with incredulity, that it is not the strength of my faith that saves but the nature, strength, and adequacy of faith's object that saves, who is Christ, and that faith is never self-focused, but looks away from itself. Faith always looks to Christ the object and away from self. But Calvin is also right when he says, the fire of affliction reveals the quality of our faith. And even though it is not the quality of my faith that saves me, You and I need a deeper quality of faith as we move along in the Christian life. So this man came to Jesus because he believed that Jesus could meet his need. And that is what faith is all about. As many a theologian has said through the centuries, faith is born of need. Faith is born of need. Machen in his great book, What is Faith? says this, Without the sense of dire need, the stupendous, miraculous events of Jesus' coming and Jesus' resurrection are unbelievable because they are out of the usual order. 
But to the man who knows the terrible need caused by sin, these things are valuable just because they are out of the usual order. The man who is under the conviction of sin can accept the supernatural, for he knows that there is an adequate occasion for its entrance into the course of the world. In other words, when you and I are faced with what our sin is really like, that we have offended a holy God, that we are justly deserving of his infinite displeasure, and without hope save in his sovereign mercy, when I see my need, then nothing but the supernatural intervention of God makes sense. Nothing else will do. Nothing and no one can save me but God himself and the person of his Son. And so, as I have stressed all along, every miracle of Jesus that we have seen in Luke's gospel points to his resurrection and to the new creation order that awaits us. Do you sometimes feel your faith is so weak that you wonder if it can be faith at all? Faith and unbelief are all mixed up in Christians. The unbelief, however, does not make the faith less certain because the object of your faith is certain and the object of your faith is Christ. All attention here falls upon Jesus. And again, to quote my friend John Calvin, faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. And so we see deliverance in this passage. It's very simply and quickly put in verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Jesus simply rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. I can't help but mention that in Mark, Jesus rebukes and judges after the demon's violence And the language of Mark 9, 26, and 27, read it on your own later, piles up the language of death and resurrection. Mark 9, 27 uses the language of resurrection because the cure points to Jesus' own death and resurrection to destroy Satan's reign. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of Man, the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the devil's work. And so we find here the incredible joy of redemption, the power of God to save, Satan defeated, God's grace manifested, the old order of things done away, the new established. These are the things demonstrated, pointed to in the miracles of Christ and in this miracle. There is a name high over all in hell and earth and sky, Angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. No one but Jesus can free you from the thraldom of Satan's kingdom. And so we see inability. We see deliverance. And as we see this deliverance, notice that it's something that moves the crowd. For in verse 43, we are told that they were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, the term that is translated here, astonished at the majesty of God, can mean majesty, grandeur, sublimity. And I think there's a great lesson for us here. It speaks volumes. 
Because it's one thing to be impressed by Jesus, to be impressed by a miracle of Jesus, to be impressed by what he does. It's one thing to be impressed by Jesus. It's another thing altogether to embrace him personally by faith as Lord and Savior of your life. Astonished? Yes, we should be astonished, but be astonished as a believer saved from sin. Now here it's wonderful, isn't it? Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down into this sin-cursed world, pointing, of course, to his incarnation among us, and there he heals this poor boy that no one else could heal. It's a wonderful thing. And you would think that the text would stop there, but it doesn't. Because the third thing we see in the text is the approaching agony. The approaching agony. The incredible joy of redemption, the power of God to save, what wonder is found in the miracles of Christ, but for the fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth and what is pointed to in this miracle, it will require a drastic solution to the reality of sin. If you are not now a believer in Christ and you are dubious about miracles, the whole idea of miracle is fantastic to you. Let me again remind you that the real issue, according to the New Testament, at base is not intellectual, but it's moral. The real issue for someone who doesn't believe the gospel, that is from beginning to end supernatural, is that he doesn't see his need for the supernatural. Do you see your need? All the philosophies and religions of the world will not help. They are all about what we do, but Christianity is about what God has done for us in Christ. And when you see yourself a needy sinner in the presence of a holy God, and that you have nothing to offer, nothing that would move God to redeem your soul, the miracles of Jesus will present no problem at all. As a matter of fact, you will say, apart from this, how could I be saved? So it's what he does, not what we do. And that is why Jesus stresses his approaching agony in verses 43 and 44. And they were all astonished at the majesty of God. So you can hear the crowd buzzing and talking among themselves. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. While the crowd admires what Jesus has done, he has lost none of his driving commitment to save us by going to the cross. Very soon he will no longer be popular. The crowds will turn away from him. Would someone who performs miracles like this suffer and die? Remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wanted to leap over the cross, leap over the suffering, go immediately to glory, and now we see him perform a miracle. Would someone who performs miracles like this suffer and die? The disciples as yet do not have the equipment to understand what this means. And yet here, Jesus stresses the certainty of his soon coming sacrifice. 
the Jews will turn him over to the Gentiles and he will die by crucifixion. Now sometimes, pastoral comment, sometimes, periodically, frequently, gently, but really, the Lord shows me more and more the depth of my sin sometimes just lifts the cover from my heart. And he shows me the depth of my sin in fresh ways. Now that's been going on in my heart of late. But also with a heart that is concerned for numbers of people, some of whom are in the grips of sin. As I've been impressed with the depth of it all, I've just seen in a new and fresh way how awful sin is. That it would require the Holy Son of God to come into this world to save and redeem us. I've seen in a new and fresh way, again, the destruction of sin, of Satan, the utter insanity of rebellion against God, the base ingratitude of sin, the idolatry of sin, the stubbornness of it, the cancerous nature of sin, the vileness of sin, the pride, the boasting, the scapegoating, the judgment of it, the effect that it has on others around and not only on oneself, the overweening self-centeredness of sin, the dishonor that it brings to God and to ourselves, the vileness of it, the implacability of sin, the covenant-breaking nature of sin, the sheer wickedness of it, the slimy pit of sin, the excuse-making, the unnaturalness of sin, the irrationality of sin, the way it grips the heart and the affections. And then I begin to understand that when God speaks in his word of eternal wrath against sin, I say, I deserve that and lesser punishment would not be right. And then I read verse 22 of this chapter, where Jesus says to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then I read verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And against the backdrop of the wickedness and ugliness of sin, my mind then rushes to the epistles of Paul, which is where we need to go to understand what Christianity is all about. And I read in Romans chapter 3, after that litany in which Paul speaks of the horrible nature of sin, He says in Romans 3.21 and following, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then my mind goes to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 6, where we read, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, his love for us sinners, his love for us ungodly wicked people, his love for those deserving of his wrath. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then, as I contemplate these things against the backdrop of the ugliness and awfulness of my sin, when I read these passages, then I am more amazed at the majesty of God than ever the crowds could have been who saw the boy healed by Jesus. That God, the second person of the Trinity, would go to a cross and bear the infinite wrath of God against my sin in my place is beyond my ability to even comprehend that he paid the penalty of my sin and that I might now sing guilty, vile, and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior I told you this was a simple passage father couldn't heal him disciples couldn't heal him crowd certainly could do nothing. Jesus healed the boy. But it's all because he willingly came into a world of ugly, ugly, ugly depravity, rebellion, and sin in order that he might go to a cross, in order that he might restore what has been lost. So what does this miracle tell us? It tells us one thing. This miracle tells us that there is no case too hard for Jesus. Impossible for the father, impossible for the boy, even the disciples, but it was not impossible for Jesus. And let me assure you, your case is not too hard for him either. His blood shed on the cross can make the foulest sinner clean. Trust him. 
Trust him now. Be done with your own works and your own efforts. Lay down the weapons of your warfare. Trust him. Trust him now. And you are his and he is yours forever. Thank God there is no such thing as temporary salvation. Once in Christ, in Christ forever, nothing from his love can sever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.